I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to be reading all the way through the next chapter. Um, this is kind of a uh, more of a flyover at 30,000 feet, if you will, when we're looking at this passage, because I think we've got to get to the latter verses that I'm going to read to really fully grasp and appreciate uh, what comes before those last few verses. Well, if you're able, stand together with us for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us. You may be seated. Well, 1 Timothy gives us a a vision for the church, and that's why we're studying it, because we want to be the kind of church that God prescribes in his word. And there's such wonderful uh, guidance here for us. And it is almost like, uh, as I said a couple of weeks ago, 
a book of church order. In, the, in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, we have a, a book of church order that tells us how we are to do things, like how do we conduct a, a elder and deacon nominations and elections, and how do we run a, a presbytery meeting, and how do we run a session meeting, and how do you run a diaconate meeting, and there's all these steps and things that are required to do things decently and in order, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians. And Presbyterians are really into being in order. And uh, sometimes it's not decent, but it's in order at least. Well, uh, Paul is specifically writing to Timothy to give him instructions on uh, how he should lead the church specifically in Ephesus, which is where Timothy was stationed and he was leading the church there. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says why he's writing to Timothy. He lays it out there. Here's the exact reason. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So if we look back to what he's been saying in this book, just to sum it up, Chapter 1 sets the scene by warning us, uh, warning Timothy and us, by extension, of false teaching and people uh, in the church who were getting away from the good news about Jesus and they were arguing about speculative things. It says there in chapter 1 that they were arguing about genealogies and we don't know exactly what that's all about, but... Uh, there's a lot of Jewish mythology and uh, Jewish mythology surrounding genealogies and tracing roots back and, and arguing about all those sorts of things. And you can see, why is that important at all? And Paul's saying, look, it's not important. And they're just arguing and they're causing dissension in the church and they're, they're, they're making something that's uh, uh, not even uh, irrelevant the main thing. And they're losing the gospel by doing that. It was a distraction from the good news about Jesus. Well, in chapter 2, he tells us how we need to combat that false teaching. Well, Timothy needs to confront it, but everybody should pray. We should, we should pray. Uh, pray for others, even those who uh, you won't think about praying for, like kings and those in authority. And maybe even people who are your enemies, because at that time, in the first century church, uh, the Roman officials were definitely anti-Christian. And so Paul's saying, you pray for those people, pray for those leaders, pray for them, and pray for all kinds of men, because all kinds of men are going to be, and women are going to be part of the kingdom of God. It's not just people like you. Uh, or people like one group over here, but people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, every station of life. So we need to pray, he says. And then, as we just read, he singles out the sexes, gives instructions for men uh, and women. And as we look at those things in the, in the next uh, a few minutes, we need to remember that all of these things are of utmost importance in the church that Jesus bought with his life and his blood. The church is the church of Jesus Christ. It belongs to him. He's the good shepherd. He's the head of the church. In our book of church order, that's the first, first paragraph. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. There's no man that's the head of the church. It's Jesus' church. It belongs to him. 
And we need to do it, do church like he tells us in his word. And that's the important lesson to grasp here. If we don't understand the importance of the church, then we're not going to make any sense out of the directions that he gives us here. I mean, you read it, and it's so uh, opposite of the way that our world thinks about things. So to follow this is going to make us run completely counter to the culture, and that makes it difficult because people don't understand. They think we're sexist. They think we're misogynist. We're called all kinds of names, particularly for what it says here about women. But the the, the issue is that this is the church of Jesus Christ and we need to do church like Jesus Christ tells us through his apostles. Well, he tells us here something about the church. Let's, let's get our heads around that a little bit, the importance of the church and just what he tells us here. He starts off in verse 15 of chapter 3 uh, saying the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, pillars hold up a building. We've got pillars out front here uh, on, the, on the front of the church. We've got pillars running inside the church. We've got pillars in the very back uh, of the church near the fellowship hall. And had a guy look at them this week and he said, I don't know, and you've seen they're rotting at the bottom. Uh, he says, I'm amazed that that's still holding up. So when you walk under that today, when you leave, don't think about it too much, but move quickly. No. Uh, but, you know, if your pillars are compromised, it is risky. And, of course, the deacons are working on that, and, and uh, those will be repaired in good time. So pillars are important. They uphold the building. And what he's saying here is the church is to be the pillar of truth. It's to uphold the truth, to hold it up and to not let it fall, uh, to, to, to display it before the world. So we're the pillar of truth. And he get, goes on to say the buttress. Now the word buttress there means support or foundation. So... Uh, the church is the support of the truth. We are to promote the truth, protect the truth, defend the truth, and promote the truth. How we behave inside the church and outside the church is a direct reflection on the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here. That's why it's so important that we understand the importance of the church, that it is the church of Jesus Christ, and he's given us clear instructions on how to do things. Well, look at verse 16. Let's explore the truth that we are to uphold, because he lays it out here. Verse 16 uh, is part of a hymn, most uh, commentators believe, an, an ancient hymn of the church, where it says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All of that, he says, is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. Now, when you read the word mystery in the Bible, as I've told you many times before, because Paul uses that word uh, regularly, uh, he's not saying that it's, it's something that you can't, uh, that you don't know. 
It's something that was once hidden and is now revealed. That's what a mystery is in the Bible. Uh, the mystery, hidden for ages, he'll say, things of that nature. Uh, Christ was hidden, and then he took on human flesh and he appeared. And so there's no more mystery. The mystery has been revealed. You may have read an Agatha Christie uh, uh, novel, and, uh, and, and I like Sherlock Holmes. And I've read Sherlock Holmes, the complete Sherlock Holmes, probably four or five times. And, you know, I know how they're going to end. I already know who done it, uh, but I still enjoy reading it. It's, it's, it's not a mystery to me who's done it, but it's still a mystery because it was something hidden that has been revealed. The gospel is that way, the, the mystery of godliness. Now, he calls it the mystery of godliness because in Christ Jesus, you'll notice all those statements are about Jesus. In Christ Jesus, something is revealed about godliness or piety uh, or devotion, which is what that word godliness means there. Um, Jesus is the only way that we can be godly. How can, how can we sinners stand before a holy God? How can we be devoted to the Lord in an acceptable manner? How can we be truly pious, loving the Lord with our lives, not just with our lips? How can we move beyond simply bearing the name Christian and actually have communion with God to know him and to walk with him? How can we sinners uh, walk with him on a daily basis? Well, the answer is Jesus. It's by faith, united to him. Being united to Jesus Christ by faith unites you to his godliness, his perfect record. He has done everything to secure godliness for the believer. He, he was perfect in every way. He never sinned. And that perfect record is credited to the one who puts his faith and trust in Jesus or her faith and trust in Jesus. So Jesus is the mystery of godliness supernaturally revealed to his people. And Paul tells us six things here concerning Christ which make up the mystery of godliness. And, and these are the truths. This truth about Jesus, that is what we are to uphold. That is what we are to promote. He was manifested in the flesh. That's why we celebrate Christmas, that God became man and dwelt among us. Uh, God doesn't leave us helpless in our sins, but Jesus takes on human flesh and comes to rescue us. Uh, God doesn't wait for us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps uh, to work our way into his favor. No, he saw that we were helpless sinners and he came down to pay the penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven and cleansed and freed from the guilt and the power of sin and one day from the very presence of sin. He did all the work to save us and all we have to do is put our trust in him. You can't earn your salvation by being good. God came and he was good for you. He was perfect for you. He was manifested in the flesh, but he was also vindicated by the Spirit. I believe this is another way of saying he rose from the dead. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was reproached as a sinner. The people who condemned him thought he was uh, uh, a malefactor, 
but he was raised again by the Spirit. And so was justified from all the defamations which were thrown at him. His obedience to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people was complete and more than sufficient and acceptable for the payment of our sins. And because he was sinless, death could not claim him. Why do we die? Humans weren't made to die. Adam and Eve weren't created to die. Uh, Sin entered the world and death came with it. Jesus was sinless and he died. But because he was sinless, death had no claim on him. He was perfect in every way. And so what, nothing else could happen but him rising from the dead. And he was risen by the Spirit, it tells us in uh, Romans uh, 4.25, 1 Peter 3.18, for example. He arose again for our justification he was delivered, as he was delivered for our offenses. He was put to death in the flesh, but quickened, made alive by the Spirit. That's 1 Peter 3.18. So he's, our, our God is alive. He is alive. And that issue of the resurrection is the most important issue when you're thinking about Jesus. I heard somebody this week say they were wrestling with uh, whether or not Jesus had been raised from the dead. And they understood that that was the crux of the matter. And they were wrestling with it. And if, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then he is who he says he was. If not, then it doesn't matter. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, as Paul said, our faith is in vain. But he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. They attended his incarnation. They were there at his temptation, his agony. He was, he, they ministered to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there at his resurrection. We heard a sermon last week up in Clarksdale on the resurrection and, and the two angels that were sitting where Jesus was and, and Mary seeing those angels and, and seeking Christ. They were there at his ascension. You know, when, the, when the disciples are looking up in the air, wondering where Jesus went, uh, the, the angels say, why are you staring into the sky? Jesus is coming again. So the angels are all, always around. They minister to him because he's the Lord of the angels. I love this passage in 1 Peter 1.10. Concerning this salvation that Peter's writing about in his letter, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. These are the prophets. They're they're studying the Scriptures, trying to figure it out. They're hearing from God. When is all this going to happen? Who's it going to be? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. And here's the kicker. Things into which angels long to look. The angels love Jesus. They love the gospel. They rejoice when a sinner repents and comes to know Jesus. And they were always ministering to Jesus. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. He's preached unto the Gentiles. Even when uh, the shepherds heard the announcement that uh, Jesus was born, it said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just the Jews, but for all the people. And that word people does mean the nations or 
Gentiles, the, the whole world. And of course, he was believed on in the world. The fifth thing that he says there. Uh, he was not preached in vain. People came to know the Lord, and here we are 2,000 years later. People from all over the world have embraced Christ. started with just Jesus and 12 disciples, and it's changed the very course of the world. And then finally, he was taken up into glory in his ascension. And, of course, that was before he was believed on in the world. But it's put here at the end because... Uh, it points to his final place. He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, laying our case out and defending us. See, this is the message that we have in the church. This is the message that we are to uphold. This is the message that we are to protect. And this is the, the, the very reason for our existence. There's a great old book from Scotland written by a fellow named Bannerman called The Church of Christ. And he's talking about in this, in this section about what, what makes a church a church. What is the, the, the number one mark of a church? And he says this, to hold and to preach the true faith or doctrine of Christ is the only sure and infallible note or mark of a Christian church because this is the one thing for the sake of which a church of Christ has been instituted on earth to preach the true faith or doctrine of Christ. It's the sure and infallible note or mark of a Christian church. If we get away from the gospel, then we're no longer a church. It's true of so many churches today. They've gotten off on Matters that don't matter. They're not matters because they don't matter. Uh, insignificant things instead of the gospel. So back to these instructions that we're given here in the next few minutes. I'll give you a brief summary. He's telling all these things, remember, because the church is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. And he's telling us how we should behave in the church. And he says this, first of all, that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men should be holy. You can't lift up holy hands unless you're holy. So men, we should be holy and be prayers. Do we lead the way in prayer in our homes and in the church? Or do we spend our time angry or quarreling with one another? So many churches have dissension and infighting, and that's, the, that's the, uh, the, the number one thing the devil does in a church. When a church tries to start doing something for the Lord and be faithful to the Lord, you can guarantee that the devil's going to come in and start getting people looking at one another instead of looking at Jesus and criticizing one another and fighting with one another. We've got to be on the, be on the lookout for that. So men... We shouldn't be quarreling. We should be praying. Women should adorn themselves, verse 9 of chapter 2, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Apparently that was all the rage there in Ephesus of the day. Um, but 
adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't wear nice clothes. Uh, it just means be modest. And, and the most important thing is the good works, is, is uh, what you show by your actions, not what you're showing or not showing by your dress. So modesty, good works, um, self-control. These are the way that we should behave in the church as women, not me, you women. Then verse 11. Now here's where I'm going to make all you mad. And you won't come to the luncheon afterwards. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, we can look at other passages for like 1 Corinthians 11.5, for example. And, and this does, if you look at that verse, it does say that women were praying and prophesying in the church. So this is not saying that women can never speak in church, even though it says that. But... I think there's a specific problem that he was addressing here. Uh, in the synagogue, before Christ came, women were not allowed to speak at all. In the church of Jesus Christ, women were allowed to do these things. Now, perhaps in Ephesus, some of these women took it too far or they got carried away with their newfound freedom and the word there... Uh, exercise authority in verse 12 uh, is to dominate or lord it over. So some of these women were obviously powerful women. They were wealthy women if they're dressing fancy with gold in their hair. Uh, powerful women who were lording it over the men of the church. Um, Paul says that's, that's not the right way. And it's not just cultural. Some people would argue, oh, this is just a cultural position from a, from a patriarchal society in the first century. Well, Paul takes it all the way back to creation, uh, to, to Adam and Eve in the garden, and to the fall as well. Now, we can compare that part as well to the Scriptures. Now, he lays uh, some blame here at Eve. She was the one deceived. But if you look at Romans, Paul lays the blame for the sins of the world squarely upon Adam. So Adam is to blame as well as Eve. But to make his point, he's going all the way back to creation. And God has set up an order of things. Now, verse 15, I don't know what that means. And, and commentators, that, that she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control... There's about three different ways you can look at that, and nobody really knows for sure what that means. It certainly does not mean that uh, a woman is saved through having children. That's not what this means, obviously, because some women don't have children, and they're going to be saved, and that you know, men will be saved too. Uh, this means something else. Perhaps, and this is probably the most popular view, uh, perhaps this is pointing to the fact that Eve was the mother of mankind, and through Eve, uh, the seed of the woman, uh, the, the Christ comes, and that's how everybody will be saved, through the one who was born, the seed of the woman. So a lot of commentators think that's what it's referring to, but it's not very clear. I don't know that it's that important, but the last part is certainly important. Continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control.
So there's an order that God has given us in the church of how we should do things. And then chapter 3, we have the, uh, the requirements for those who would be elders, those men who would be elders and those men who would be deacons. Um, this again falls in with what was said before, that there's an order to things and men are the ones who occupy these offices of elder and deacon. Um, if you'll notice there, and, and we're about to have our general assembly meeting, uh, and there's a report that's going to be coming forward on abuse in the church. A study committee has, has done a report. I don't know that it's reporting specific abuse that has happened in our church, but it's talking about the issue of abuse in the church. The Southern Baptists have just come out with a study of, a, of all the abuse that has happened in their church. This is a problem in the church today and has been for some time. Uh, abuse has gone on. We can't stick our head in the sand and say that it doesn't happen. There has been abuse in the church, and, and people, particularly men, have wielded the power that they have, the authority that they have, in an ungodly way. Now, if you look at these requirements, I mean, there is no way there should ever be someone abusing power who's an elder. Uh, what does what it say? They should be above reproach. They should be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, managing his own household well. If someone fits that description, there's no abuse that should happen. So we need to protect the offices of the church and make sure that we meet the requirements. And if you are an officer in the church, look at that list and be encouraged, let me encourage you to be those things. We all fall short. We're all sinners. Repent and continue to turn to the Lord. Deacons, again, same thing. Uh, not greedy. Uh, they're in charge of the money. They're in charge of the, the care of the congregation. And, and here's an opportunity where some people could be left behind. But this is, this is telling us that they need to have a clear conscience and not be greedy or dishonest. Um, officer elections are upon us, are coming upon us, and nominations right now. So these are, it's a good time to look at these things and think about them. How do we conduct ourselves in the church of Christ? As officers, as those who are nominating officers, as men and women in the church, uh, what is our role to play? How should we do uh, church, the church of Jesus Christ, his body? Uh, all of us who are elders, we're under shepherds. He's the, he is the shepherd. It's his flock. And we have been put in charge and we're going to be held accountable for how we have shepherded that flock. And not only that, not only is it important that we within the church behave in a certain way as, as prescribed in Scripture, but it's a testimony to the world out there. Uh, it should be a testimony of love, a testimony of godliness, and most importantly, and overarching, a testimony to the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what the church should be. 
And may God give us grace to be that church that shows Jesus in everything that we do. The way that we conduct our business, the way that we are organized, the message that we preach and teach, uh, our worship, everything should point to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would help us to conform to it in all ways because of your grace and mercy to us, Lord. We pray that you would help us to conform to your word, to the truth of your word, to the gospel in such a way that it would not only be heard from our mouths and our, by our voices, but it would be seen by the way that we love one another, serve one another, uh, submit to one another out of love for Christ, as Paul tells the Ephesians, how we put the other person first, but most of all, Lord, how we promote you in, in our lives and love you with our lives and, and talk about you. Lord, we pray that our church and the churches of these visitors that are here with us today, that those churches would bring glory and honor to your name and proclaim Christ throughout the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.